Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm extremely confident we've in fact got one of the leading minds in wealth management. We're speaking to one of the giants of the wealth management and funds management industry and advice industries in Chris Cuff. We talked to Chris about his experience in the industry since the early to mid 80s and ongoing activities currently in the market. Some of the highlights of that career include being right at the forefront of the creation of the asset management, funds management business as the founding CEO of Colonial First State that was built up to a $70 billion under management investment manager and sold to Commonwealth Bank. We talked to him about his time as chairman of UniSuper, which is currently on the investment committee for, which manages $90 billion. We talked to him about being the chairman of the Hearts and Minds inspired SON uh, conference inspired LIC, which is a charitable focused investment company that's performed very well, as well as his founding position in Third Link, a similar investment focused vehicle on philanthropy. Uh, we also talked to him about being on the investment committee for Australia's largest charitable foundation at the Ramsey Foundation. So I think you'll find you'll get a lot out of this. We also touch on towards the end about a lot of the work he's done to enable some very, very meaningful charitable donations to be made from people looking to invest and also give as a consequence of that. We talk about how people can start that journey and some of the tips and traps in it. Please keep your feedback coming. It's really appreciated. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And please remember, this isn't specific advice. You're encouraged to get your own advice at all times and also listen to the disclaimer at the podcast. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode as much as I did. Chris Cuff, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me. Chris, uh, you've been described as a veteran investor and philanthropic leader. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, in, in something like the 80 odd episodes that we're up to or roughly that number, I think you've got one of the most impressive CVs, so thanks for joining us. Great. I'm not sure I like the word veteran. I prefer the word experienced. I think I just started young. <laughs> <laughs> um, perhaps, Chris, we could start off with the benefit of our listeners if you could give us uh, a run-through of your background, maybe touching on some of the things that you think were influential in the way you like to think about investing and your approach um, that might be helpful for some of our listeners. Which I, and I think you started off from my research as an accountant at Pete Marwick, which is now what KPMG, perhaps that's a good starting point. Yes, well, I went to uni, qualified as an accountant, worked for uh, what is now KPMG, as you said. Uh, I did that for a couple of years, but I, I really felt it was, um, I wanted to work more, you know, in the real world and with um, a couple of, uh, with a single company, I guess, is, is what I thought. So I was, saw an ad in the paper when I was a young guy to go and work for a, a startup fund manager, which is actually called um, First State Fund Managers, or Sydney Fund Managers actually was the original one, and which was a subsidiary of a, a Edinburgh-based firm, but I was then headhunted to head up a startup called First State Fund Managers, 
which was a subsidiary of the State Bank of New South Wales, if your listeners are old enough to know the State Bank of New South Wales. And, uh, and over time, that uh, the State Bank of New South Wales was acquired by uh, other groups, and what started as First State Fund Managers became Colonial First State, which many people still recognise the name. And the Colonial First State still exists, though it was split into two. Anyhow, uh, the Colonial Group bought it, and then the Commonwealth Bank subsequently bought the Colonial Group. But when I started off in investment management, it was really interesting because investment. this was the early 80s we're talking, and it was really the start of what is now the modern funds management industry. And investment management that could be accessed by the public was only just starting. Before that time, it, you know, money was managed within the, the mysterious bowels of life companies and no one really knew what they did and all that type of stuff. But anyhow, as the modern industry uh, grew and uh, firms like BT, uh, Bankers Trust, uh, commenced and Macquarie, they had a cash management trust, which is still going these days, and um, Rothschilds and other groups. Anyhow, I was around in those times. But I came in as a, uh, as a square accountant um, you know, mixing with fund managers in a firm and, and trying to figure out what on earth they were talking about. And I, I found over time a lot of what they did was, quite frankly, nonsense and there wasn't a lot of logic to what they were saying. So I tried to build logic around the investment management process from quite a young age. And this was particularly so when I um, uh, moved to First State Fund Managers. Uh, and that firm, which, as I say, was a startup, by the, uh, I joined there in 1988. And when I left 14 years later, it was actually at that time the largest, became the largest fund manager in Australia. So obviously we did something right. Yeah, uh, we, I think more than 70 billion funds under advice or something. Similar. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we'd passed AMP in size by then. So we were um, big and we'd been through, we'd taken over a number of other firms but I really enjoyed leading that charge and uh, I enjoyed mixing with the fund managers and really trying to get into what their trade was and, and what makes a good fund manager and what doesn't. Actually, one of the things I learned in, in early in the piece was um, the really good fund managers were uh, quite strange people in many ways. They were They were very focused on their trade, which you want them to be, and often they were great fund managers, but you know, pretty um, useless at most other things and, and often didn't have a lot of EQ either. So, you know, one of the things I've even carried through my career to date is that I, I like fund managers who are a bit weird, a bit strange. Doesn't mean they're bad people at all, nothing like it. They're just very focused and, and block out the rest of the world because it's a tough game. Managing money is constant pressure uh, on you and uh, the good managers handle that well. What were some of the weird things that you, or, or nonsensical, sorry, things that you saw fund or money managers doing at that early stage where you thought, this doesn't make sense to me? Well, um, some of the weird, if I just look at some of the weird characteristics first, and then I'll get on to um, some of the weird things they did. One fund manager who I worked with for years, who became quite famous in Australia, actually, and uh, he used to go into a room when he was... Um, assessing companies, and I go with him from time to time, and uh, he'd look at the people around the table, and when we'd come out of the room after pitching for, to manage money, or pitching to uh, 
looking at the company uh, that was there and deciding whether we'd invest in them, he'd make comments like, did you see, you know, two across, he was way overweight. And did you see so-and-so had strange eyes? I'm not investing with someone with strange eyes and stuff like that. I used to scratch my head. Anyhow, um, but some of the stuff in the early days, funds management was very unstructured. Uh, generally speaking, the um, most commonly used funds by the public were what we call balanced funds. So funds that were invested in international shares, Australian shares, fixed interest, a bit of property. Um, that uh, doesn't happen much other than in the superannuation industry. So most people have their money in superannuation, uh, some money in superannuation and are mainly in balanced funds like that. But excluding superannuation, uh, the, the area that's not compulsory, so your own savings, most people, particularly those using a financial advisor, they invest in specific sectors as advised to them. So they're looking for someone in Australian equities alone than someone in international alone, someone in fixed interest. They don't generally go into a single fund that combines all those. But those balanced funds, I found they were run very illogically. It's very hard to understand uh, the asset allocation a manager would do, that is how much they would put in each sector and why. Uh, could never understand that. And I came to understand early in the piece too, um, managers often just followed what the manager up the road did. So if the manager up the road had 30% in Australian equities, you'd have 30% in Australian equities. They all sort of ran like a pack, so to speak. And they'll found over time the managers I most admire and would invest money with or, or clients' money are, are those that think quite independently to others and aren't worried about that sort of business risk. They're more there to honestly do the best thing by the investor. But that's a hard thing because another thing that I learned very early in the piece, you really can't assess success in managing money in short periods of time. So I run, I run a fund myself, for example, and, and I assess the capabilities of a manager over five years. So um, I wouldn't change a manager in a five-year period. I might sort of see some red lights going off at the three-year point or something like that, but unless they did something really strange, I stick with them for a while because um, good managers have good times and bad times. It's a bit like a cricketer, you know, out there on the pitch and a, a batter and uh, some batsmen do really well for periods of time uh, and then they go through um, dry patches where they don't score many runs and it doesn't mean you get rid of them straight away. The great cricketers, you know, you've got to be with them through their, their good and bad and I think fund managers are like that. Obviously though, you want their batting average to be good. Good. Let's, let's get on to third link, but I think stepping through that chronology of the career history, I think after Colonial First State, you went to Challenger? Yes, yeah, sorry, I, I, um, I got off track there. Yes, I went to uh, the firm that, that's known as Challenger. Some people might uh, know that. Um, and I was there for a few years as, as the CEO. Uh, Challenger's probably most famous for its annuity products. Uh, and then after that, I decided um, I wanted a break from commerce, I actually went and worked in the not-for-profit sector. I worked for a company called Social Ventures Australia, which was a, uh, a firm that was a collection of people like me from commerce who were uh, there to help uh, charities do their thing more efficiently and effectively. Am I right in thinking uh, Michael Trail's involved? Yeah, Michael That's Trail. He's been on the podcast before our listeners right, know. Yeah, Michael's a good friend of mine and I first met him through Social Ventures Australia. And then after being there for a few years, I thought, no, I don't want to do that full time anymore either. I want to do a bit of everything. So I, I decided I'd, 
I then um, uh, do a portfolio of activities, as people say. So I sit on various investment committees. The largest committee has, uh, we manage $95 billion. Uh, I, so I sit on investment committees. I sit on listed investment companies. I help some ultra high net worth families. And I have a, a couple of philanthropic interests that I've, uh, that I'm very passionate about and help start some of those. So I do a variety of things. So in that, I think you're selling yourself a little short in that you've been awarded Order of Australia and some of these things that you're involved in. Um, you, you're, you're on the investment committee or, and I think you're a past chairman of uh, Uni Super. That's correct. Which yep. is a very large fund. I, I think you're also uh, on the investment committee and a director of um, uh, the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is Australia's largest um, philanthropic foundation. Mm. Um, uh, and, and you've also started uh, and are running Third Link Investments. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, Third Link Investments, uh, Third Link, I, I run a fund called Third Link Growth Fund, and I started that almost 13 years ago. So it's been running for a while. And I started it as a way to get an income stream for the charitable sector. And the way it works is this. Um, I'd, I'd left Challenger by that stage, and I thought, gee, I know a lot of people in this industry. I wonder if I could sort of combine uh, my investment skills uh, and do something useful for charity. So I started this fund called Third Link Growth Fund. And basically, it's an Australian equities fund, uh, still going today, still open for investment. It's got about $200 million invested in there. It's got about 700 investors. It invests in Australian equities. And the way I do that is not I don't invest the money directly myself. I have a collection of fund managers underneath that I've handpicked over the years, who I think are very good fund managers. So I've got a collection of those under there. So it's what's called a fund of funds. My fund is invested in other funds. And those fund managers uh, all do the investing for free. They do that because they know there's a charitable bent, which I'll mention in a second. And also probably out of courtesy to me, I've been around for a while and accumulated a lot of friends in this industry. And the way, so third link, uh, uh, by the way, investing Australian equities, it's had one of the best track records of any Australian equity fund over its period. It ranks in the top couple of funds in Australia over that time period. But because we all do it for free and the, the, the fund still charges a management fee, but that management fee is donated to charity. So every month I donate about $250,000 to a bunch of kids' charities. That's every month. Uh, so it's, a, it's an unusual thing. We've got an investment fund with investors and whether or not they like philanthropy, it doesn't matter. Uh, I give the money to charity. Fund managers feel good about it because they're helping society. Everybody's been a winner. It's great. And I think you're also involved with Hearts and Minds, one, the listed investment company, which has a similar type of strategy yeah. in that it has a collection of fund managers and their best ideas and the management fee goes to charity. And this is, this is becoming a little bit of a... Um, uh, getting a bit of a head of steam up. And I, I want to say there's something like $25 million a year coming out of these type of entities going to charitable causes. Yes, there's a, there's a bunch of funds now uh, that uh, the fund is managed uh, by people doing it for free and, and giving money, and the fund itself gives money to charity. And Third Link that I just described was the first of those. Uh, so the others um, copied me, which I'm very happy. But yes, the fund uh, Hearts and Minds Investments Limited listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, commenced about two years ago, currently is about a billion dollars in size, and we use a, um, a bunch of different fund managers, about 25 fund managers from around the world, 
who each give us their best pick. So we've got a portfolio, if you like, of star picks. And, um, and from there, so we invest the money based on the advice of those managers. And um, because everyone's doing it for free, in lieu of everybody getting fees, we give away 1.5% a year of the fund to charity, but to a specific charities, it's those involved with medical research in Australia. So currently we're giving away $15 million a year from that fund, uh, but it's been a good experience for investors. So in that two year period, I think the fund is up about 55%, which has been pretty decent. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. I'm the chairman of that. I didn't come up with the idea, but I helped refine it. And I was very happy to, uh, to chair it from day one. So that's been interesting. And there's a couple of other listed funds uh, that do similar things to both Third Link and Hearts and Minds. And how do you determine the weighting to each manager? Uh, we have a, f a formula. It's, it's interesting. So the Hearts and Minds portfolio is split into two parts. 35% of the fund is invested with 10 fund managers. And those 10 fund managers are the managers who speak at a well-known conference each year in Australia called the Sone Hearts and Minds Investment Conference, Investment Leaders Conference. So those fund managers, they get up on stage at this conference and pitch to the audience uh, their best stock idea. So we then uh, take those best ideas from those 10 managers and that comprises 35% of the the fund. And we turn that over every year. So as the conference is on the following year, we sell the previous year's 10 stocks and buy the current year's 10 stocks. So it's uh, simply the managers on stage at that conference. And then the other 65% of the portfolio is invested with six fund managers who are there permanently, whereas the conference fund managers are all usually different each year. The six fund managers are well-known managers in Australia and they give us their three best picks. But that's a more long-term portfolio because any of those picks can remain for many years. Whereas that 35%, the conference fund managers, their picks are turned over every year. So it's an interesting sort of collection of, of two groups. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, it's been a, uh, been a lot of fun and a lot of success to date. So I can't think of anyone else that I've come across being in my career since you know, uh, 99, who is in a better position to answer the question of how do you go about selecting a manager uh, for a managed fund or a managed investment or a strategy in this way? Tell us, tell us how you think about that and or what the process might be. Yeah, and if I give the experience of running my own fund, Third Link Growth Fund, so I've got to pick managers to, to manage the money underneath. So there is about 10 managers underneath. Uh, so what I, some of the things I look for when I'm looking for a manager, first of all, I believe that many managers actually uh, can't add a lot of value managing funds. They give a good story. So if you hear a fund manager pitch to you about how they manage money, you walk away often thinking, oh, gee, I better invest with that person. They do well. But I think the first thing uh, to understand is there's not a lot of really talented fund managers. And you, as I said before, you can't judge them over a short period of time. So if they get up and tell you their one-year results, uh, I'm not interested in that. I want to see their five-year results and I want to understand, uh, so rolling five years, and I want to understand 
how they achieved those results. Was it one lucky stock or was it across the portfolio? I tend to uh, prefer managers that are managing a uh, small number of stocks. By small, I mean sort of 20 or less. I like what they call concentrated portfolios like that. Many managers will run a portfolio, say in Australian shares, they might have 50 or 60 stocks. And I think it's hard to outperform um, uh, benchmarks with that many stocks. So it's, I'd rather see people with a whole lot less stocks and a lot more, so a lot more focus on, on a whole lot less stocks. Um, I like managers to really be active. So by that I mean, um, I don't want their portfolios to resemble the benchmark. So often in Australia, if you look at an Australian equity fund manager, a normal manager, um, you know, the banks, our four banks and Macquarie Bank in Australia, if that comprises 35 or 40% of the index, you'll often find the managers uh, have roughly the same, or they might think, they'll talk in terms of we're, um, we're long on banks and they might have 45% instead of 40. Uh, or they're short on banks, they might have 35% instead of 40. But that to me is still really mimicking or copying the index. So if you're going to copy the index, uh, no surprise, you'll probably get an index result. And by the time you take your fees off, you'll probably underperform the index. And that's what generally happens. So I like managers who are benchmark unaware. So, um, you know, one of my favourite managers, by the way, right now, they have no uh, waiting at all to banks. And uh, from time to time, they have no weighting at all to miners, which are also a large part of our index. So managers who think quite independently of the index and who genuinely think in terms of three to five years rather than trying to guess it right for the next one month or three months or whatever. So, so active managers, concentrated portfolios. I said before, I like the manager to be a little bit weird because uh, that's been my experience. Uh, the good managers, and I've just got to see their their track record. Um, I would say also fees are very important, although f for the fund I run, their fee is not important because mm. they do it for free. Mm. So that's a great luxury to have. But for many managers, uh, sometimes their fee is not fair. It's uh, too, too weighted toward them rather than to the client. So if the fee is fair, that's, that's an important um, uh, thing for me to see. So that's sort of, you know, a lot of the things I, I look at. How important do you think alignment of interest is for those managers? Very important. You know, one of the other things I didn't mention a second ago, um, you know pretty quickly whether a manager is managing money to make themselves rich or are they managing the money to, do, to give the investor the best outcome. Now, I don't have a problem with managers making a lot of money, but it's I want the investor to get the best outcome and let the spoils flow to the manager secondary rather than first. But a lot of managers you know, just raise money for the sake of it and they'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. And for example, if there's a manager out there managing $20 billion in Australian equities, you probably wouldn't find me investing with them because I don't think you can manage a $20 billion portfolio and do better than the index. You might as well buy an index fund if that's if that's uh, what you want to do, and pay a fraction of the cost. So I look I, the managers I like the most have a, a relatively speaking small amount of funds under management, and uh, they usually, to make it worthwhile for them, they have a performance fee, which I've got no problem. So they charge a base management fee, and they have a performance fee that kicks in if they do better than the, the benchmark. So as long as the performance fee is fair, 
and there's a hot what they call a high water mark. So they've got to beat where their their last best position in terms of performance. I don't mind paying a fee at all. Sometimes people say, "Gee, a performance fee of twenty percent's a lot," and I say, "I don't mind paying twenty percent of all at all if the if the person's done well. Well, I get eighty percent. So I'm happy to share with the good managers, but." For their economics to work, it generally means they've got to have a performance fee. They keep their funds under management small, which means they can generally outperform. Chris, I have to admit, I used to be the advisor to one of the very largest um, uh, research global groups to their Australian staff for their super fund, which is quite interesting because, of course, you know, there they are, a firm of globally recognised research analysts. And I remember one year... Um, they complained that one of the managers in their portfolio had charged 2% investment cost or recovery was the fee that they took out. And, and you know, some, one of the senior people said, this is outrageous. How can they justify so much? And I said, well, they returned 45% to you. Yeah. My only problem is it wasn't 3% if they hadn't got 60%. 60. Um, so, yeah, sometimes that rationale is not always there across the industry. I'm also interested when I think back and I think about the sort of industry norms and I, I see a lot of research houses talk about, oh, we don't like this manager because um, there's too much key person risk here. And, and I think you've got a different view on that. Yeah, very much so. I should have said, just to finish off the other topic, there's some asset sectors where being large is good, like fixed interest. So if you've got a manager managing fixed interest investments, uh, the name of the game there is for them to have as many fixed interest investments as possible, because that decreases what they call credit risk. Of course, invariably, some companies who have borrowed money don't make it, so you want a lot of companies in your portfolio. But things like Australian equities, you want a small amount. But yeah, I, key person risk is... Um, I don't frown on it at all. I say it's it's a positive because over the years I found the best money managers is not a firm, so to speak. It's an individual who might be working at that firm at that point in time. Um, and I like a single person fully accountable for a portfolio, although they might have a team of analysts or they might have a second in charge with them, but I like to know there's a point person, that one person, because that's the person I assess. So no matter how good a story a company, a investment management company spins about how the company is great and they do things in a certain way, it's the individual that actually gets the results. So that's really important to me. And I follow individuals as they move. So I've got no problem if an investment management company has just started, uh, if the individual running the money is experienced and I know them and understand how they do it, I'll give them money from day one, where others might say, particularly research houses, they'll say, no, they, they haven't been running long enough. We've got to wait for a few years. Uh, so yeah, I follow the person, not the, not the company. Perhaps we can just pivot a little bit here to more of your philanthropic exposure and experience, which is been fantastic. What's it like to be a custodian of the largest foundation in Australia? Uh, and what are the challenges that come with that and your thoughts in that area? Yeah, well, um, the largest foundation you mentioned at the start is the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which was uh, put together from a bequeath from Paul Ramsey when he died. And, and people might know Ramsey Healthcare, which Paul Ramsey uh, com uh, commenced and it became and it still is a very successful company. So that foundation is about $4 billion in size 
<clears throat> there's three people on the investment committee and I'm one of them. Uh, so three people with responsibility for a lot of money, billions of dollars, uh, to, to many people that would be daunting. I, somebody the other day said, gee, it must be sweating when you see a check land on your table for a billion dollars or more that you've got to manage. Um, the number of zeros uh, on an amount of money you managed uh, doesn't phase me in the slightest because I've done this for a while. So, I, you know, it's like if I was taken into an operating theatre and asked to do a, a brain operation, I'd be pretty nervous because I haven't done it before. But I've done this game for a long time. So a uh, billion dollars or four billion dollars doesn't uh, worry me. So, you know, starting from scratch, a blank sheet of paper, uh, you think in terms of the, the thing you always have to begin with, with that foundation or any other foundation or any other investor is, what are you, the investor, trying to achieve? You know, do you have certain liabilities you're trying to meet? Or do you have uh, X years until retirement and you've got to provide money for retirement? Or in the case of Paul Ramsey Foundation, they want to um, uh, earn enough from their investment earnings each year that they can uh, give away a lot of money to the charitable sector and still maintain the value of the corpus, the value of the capital. So we, so it's important for us to try and get a decent return above inflation, keep that capital intact if we can, uh, and and see the foundation uh, do its work with the charitable sector. So in that sense, you know, we we come up with a return objective, and then we decide which asset classes and what combination of those should likely give us that return objective, and away we go. I mean, the hardest thing when you start something new is your timing of putting your money in the market. If you just suddenly got, you know, a billion or two billion to invest, you know, should you put it in a little bit at a time or do you put it in all at once? Or uh, it's quite interesting to go through that. And you, you always sweat a bit at that time. Even after 40 years of this industry, I still sweat at, for the starting point. And you hope you get off to a good start so you get a bit of petrol in the tank and a bit of credibility in front of the client. And so, what's your answer to that question? When you when you have to when you have that starting point, obviously, uh, myself as an advisor in the industry, it's just amazing how much that start can make to your relationship, and you realise the level of risk involved in that. Um, how do you tend to solve for that? Uh, it, it does. You do have to talk to the client a bit and understand uh, what their appetite for um, volatility might be. Um, but generally speaking. Um, I've, if, if the client wants to get on investing, I'm as happy putting the money all in the market. As I say, I, I, in one go. Um, you know, you could say, well, if the market's high, you wouldn't do it then. But no one knows the market's high until retrospect or the market's low. You know, normally when the markets are low off the back of something that's happened like COVID or the global financial crisis. You think they're going lower. Yeah, you think you're going lower. Uh, people they are today, people don't think... want to catch a falling knife, as they say. So you've got no idea really at the time. Um, you could say if, if you were dealing with a client that was really worried about that, you might split your money in, say, four bits and put a quarter in the, in the various markets at various times. But in the case of um, a balanced portfolio or a portfolio invested in a number of sectors, like a foundation would generally do, um, putting it in all at once doesn't worry me because often one sector is doing well, why another's not. So, you, you know, I know with um, <clears throat> some clients I deal with, Lately, one in particular started their portfolio just before COVID uh, hit, which was March last year. And of course, we got whacked over the head pretty quickly. But um, we knew what we were doing, we thought, and we 
So, you know, we took a hit in the first month, but by month three, by April, May, things were looking pretty good. And, you know, uh, by now we're well ahead of where we started. You held your nerve. Yeah, we held our nerve, even though it was a bit of a uh, rocky ride, but we Smart. held our nerve and and that comes with experience, I think. What you don't want to do if you're dealing with a client is, is um, or, or see clients do this themselves, is panic because often people, you know, put in when the market put money in when the market's high, and everybody's talking about you know stocks and shares uh, being great, uh, and and then they get nervous and pull it out when it goes down, and they get really um, smacked around the head from two two areas. I think you're absolutely right. If you look at some analysis around index funds, for instance, nobody actually gets the index, or the investors on average don't get it because, of course. All the money comes piling in when markets are high um, and, and all the money goes out into cash when markets are low. And of course, people say, oh, we, we, we want to do the opposite. We're going to do the opposite. But behaviorally, they, they end up uh, not being able to help themselves. That's, that's exactly right. Um, you said before, I, I serve on the investment committee of UniSuper <clears throat> and I was a director and chairman for many years. And we had that same thing to deal with during the global financial crisis. Uh, UniSuper runs and still operates one of the biggest defined benefits scheme in Australia. Uh, and um, during that time, the, the defined benefits scheme during the GFC, it went down significantly, as did defined benefits schemes around the world. And the experience of most of the world was they, they started then to invest in exactly the wrong thing. They all rushed to fixed interest and many defined in, uh, investment Defined benefit schemes around the world now are way underwater and it's a time bomb waiting to go off. In the case of UniSuper, we did just the opposite. We, we doubled up on growth investments uh, after the, we'd seen all the, the fall and uh, held our nerve. You know, we're an experienced uh, lot. Maybe we're all a bit weird too. Um, we're an experienced lot and, uh, and it came through it fantastically. Chris, uh, Australian uh, Philanthropic uh, Services, what does it do? Okay, so... And why did you find... What, you're a founding yeah. director? So, uh, so I founded this firm called Australian Philanthropic Services, uh, acronym APS. Um, and I'd set up what's called a private ancillary fund in 2007. And, and that, for your listeners, is a, um, a vehicle that uh, to trust that philanthropists often use to do their giving through. It's, a, it's a, got a, a favoured area of tax law that works. Um, it's a bit of a long explanation to go in now, but you know, basically you set up these funds and you get a tax deduction whenever you put your money into the fund and then you can give it away to charity over years. So you get the tax deduction up front, you give to charity over many years, uh, helping with the returns coming from it. But anyhow, I set one up in 2007 and it was a very clunky experience. I needed lawyers and accountants and investment people. I was charged an awful, awful lot of money and I really felt like no one was doing it very well. It's got to be a better way. It's got to be a better way. So in 2010, I decided to set up what is now known as Australian Philanthropic Services and we provide a professional service from start to finish, or a one-stop shop, if you like, for people who want to engage in philanthropy in uh, through these type of vehicles called ancillary funds. Uh, so I set this up as a charity itself, so people didn't think that we were making money off them. I made sure I got a credible board in place. So I'm the chairman of that board. 
On the board, I've got directors like David Gonski, uh, Gail Kelly, who used to run Westpac, uh, Belinda Hutchinson, um, Tim Fairfax from the Fairfax family, Michael Trail, uh, and others who, who bring a lot of credibility to it. And basically, so we set these ancillary funds up for, for people. They can actually either have their own private ancillary fund like I have, or they might want to invest, hold hands with others and go into a public ancillary fund. So we offer both. And I actually also manage the money of the public ancillary fund. So I've got my feet to the fire the whole time. And we also give uh, grant making advice to clients. So a client might set this type of uh, vehicle up or invest in, in this type of vehicle and want help in deciding who they give money to, which charities and why. So if they want assistance in research doing that, we, we provide that. So, you know, these things are very good because as I say, you get a tax deduction up front. And I always think if you're going to give money away, it's better to do it while you're alive. And if you can get a tax deduction for that, you might as well do it while you're earning income too. So you, you can offset your income with the tax deduction. So that's what we're, uh, that's what we encourage people to do. We've currently got 600 clients and it's been a thorough success. Uh, it's great being associated with it. Well, I've got to say, from my experience, it's been a great service we were setting up here. I mentioned that for a number of our clients, we've used it, clients who've had liquidity events. And it's almost been, in some cases, their first touch on you know, any sort of scale of philanthropy or giving. Um, what sort of advice would you have for people like that who may have had a liquidity event, they find themselves in a position um, and they're starting their journey in this philanthropy space? Um, what would be your advice? Yeah, well, certainly if, if you are deciding to use one of these ancillary funds, doing it at the, the time to set up, if, you're, if you think you're going to be philanthropic minded, it's certainly to do it in a year when you might have a, an event where you have a, a capital gains tax bill coming in. Either you've done, you know, you've cashed in some of your investment portfolio or you've sold your business or, or even if it's not a sort of tax event, you might have inherited some money. So the starting point is, you know, there could be a, a good timing reason um, to do it. In my case, I was due a, a, a good bonus from my employment in a particular year and I thought, oh, I might, I'll set my ancillary fund up then and get a tax deduction, which I could offset against the bonus. So that was great. But we say to people, um, you know, you'll get a lot of pleasure out of this, probably more than you think. Uh, you know, if it's run well, and that's the job of Australian Philanthropic Services to set it up and administer it for you. So if it's well run, you'll probably find when we uh, survey our clients, they get a lot of, uh, a lot of binding, if you like, with their family, because they often involve their children in the giving then. So they might sit around the kitchen table and decide who they're going to give to money, the money to each year. Because the, these, these vehicles, again, as I say, you put money into them, you get the tax deduction all up front, and then you've got to give away a certain minimum each year to charity. So if you just think about that for a second, you become a compulsory regular giver. You must give money away each year. That's what the law says, because you've already had the tax deduction. And uh, so that makes it compulsory and you're regular because you're doing it every year. Um, and so people then start to really think about the charitable giving more, as opposed to somebody knocks on the door, puts out the hand, Reactive. you give them a couple of bucks or the, the latest flood or... You get an email from someone doing a bike ride. That's right. You get the email for the MS ride, the Wollongong or whatever. I mean, all that stuff's important too, by the way. But uh, for people, if you know in advance what you're going to be giving away, they tend to take a lot 
put a lot more thought in it, and they often get quite involved in these charities. And um, you know, there's no right or wrong way to give, but we see people get the most satisfaction when it's a, a charity that's um, or a cause that's affected them in some way. For example, if you've had a heart attack and you've been, um, you know, saved by uh, a particular cardiac um, group that is a, a charity, you know, you might give to them. If you, you know, you might admire the lifesavers on the beach, so you want to give to the Surf Lifesaving Association. Uh, you might have travelled and seen, you know, Indigenous kids uh, doing it tough in the Northern Territory, so there's charities that can help there. So often it's it's through personal experiences that people get quite interested in in particular charities. And that was my my case too. I, I, uh, I ended up actually uh, giving a lot to both Social Ventures Australia, which I said I actually worked for before, and indeed Australian Philanthropic Services. I said at the start, that's a charity. I had a passion to see, to see yeah. uh, philanthropy grow in Australia. And I thought, gee, if I set this thing up and it does it well, it will influence other people to give. And as it's turned out, our clients in Australian philanthropic services now have over a billion dollars uh, invested in these, in these ancillary funds and they give, collectively give away more than $100 million a year. So I could you know, possibly say in a with a smile on my face, I've helped influence, not me alone, many others have helped, but I've helped influence a quite a large amount of money to be given away each year now by, into the charitable sector. It's got to make you feel good. It's good, yeah, it's great. You know, you want to, um, I like a journey in life that, uh, where I, I try and achieve things. You know, I get out of bed each day and think I've got to move the dial a little bit forward each day, otherwise I get pretty bored pretty quick. And, and what sort of minimum amounts do you think roughly work for for someone to set up a path if there are people listening to this and they're thinking it might be a good idea but I'm not sure yeah. whether I've got enough. Yeah it. well I think of it like superannuation because uh, most people understand superannuation. So in the superannuation world you can either have your own self-managed super fund, SMSF is the acronym people know, or for many people who don't have enough for their own fund or don't want their own fund they can go into a public office super fund uh, uh, which is, you know, essentially, again, you're holding hands with other people going into a single vehicle. So it's the same with ancillary funds. The, the private ancillary fund, akin to a, a self-managed super fund, we say to people, you want about a million dollars to kick that off. Uh, and that's a high hurdle for many people. But there's many people in Australia, too, that can well and uh, truly afford that. So that's sort of what we say is your entry point. And then in the public ancillary fund we run, we say you can come in with a minimum of 50,000. So you can actually be do your philanthropy in a, in a very different and more considered way with just $50,000. And then often people build on that over time. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it goes. And um, yeah, the fees are different for both for the different vehicles. People got to weigh that up, but it's more understanding what they want to do. You know, for those who like managing money and got plenty of money, they might say, I want a private ancillary fund. For those with less money, they go into the public vehicle, which is a pooled vehicle. I manage the assets. Uh, so they don't have to bother doing that and they don't have to bother doing any compliance and stuff like that. All they have to do is concentrate on who they want to give to each year in terms of the charities. Well, Chris, we've covered a lot of ground. Before I finish up, and thank you for your time, it's been wonderful. Uh, do you have any sort of parting thoughts, ideas or advice? I know some of our listeners uh, have done very well out of business and they may have 
had the widget factory that was a fantastic business they built up and they sold it and then they've got their first taste of this wealth management industry and trying to look after a portfolio and or they're starting some philanthropic endeavors is there anything you'd like to leave them with as advice before we we, we finish up well particularly on the investment side i'd say those who have come across some money um you probably use a professional i mean you, you it's very tempting once you've been successful in business. If your particular widgets that you uh, produce, you've been a success, and like it or not, you, you probably think you've got the Midas touch. So you, you get a lump of money and you you think, oh gee, I'll invest in that bit of private equity thing or that thing over there, or I'll buy a property out at Whoop Whoop or whatever. And uh, you can you can have plenty of accidents doing that. I've unfortunately got a couple of close friends who who uh, achieved a lot in business with uh, tens of millions of dollars, blew it all on you know, really poor investments. So you know, find someone who could guide you is, is, my, is my advice. I think sometimes the financial advice industry gets a bad name and there's, like any industry, there's, there's bad apples in it, but there's some really good advisors out there uh, who can help guide you. And if you want to have hands-on, you can still have hands-on, but you've just got someone you can chat to and and you know, become comfortable. I've spent 40 years in this industry, uh, so you accumulate knowledge. You, know, it's, it's, you don't want to do something that you don't know what, really what you're doing. And on the philanthropic side? Any yeah, answer? on the philanthropic side, probably what I said before, um, if you're that way inclined, get started early. It's a lot of fun, and it's, uh, it's something you can do in retirement as well, but you know, get into one of these uh, vehicles, get your family involved, Get involved with particular charities if, if you'd like to. Uh, you'll find it's a very rewarding thing. I mean, people, I've always thought people are born wanting to help people. You know, I think all of us get a kick out of being kind or helping. And uh, you don't know it until you do it. Once you do, you think, oh, there's really another, um, another dimension to your life that you mightn't have experienced before. I think it's a wonderful place to finish the podcast. Thank you very much for your time, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.